Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week, a full episode of Courage or Cringe featuring urban salon and barbershop marketing mogul, Will Shelton. Today we look at Rudy Giuliani's legal woes, ESPN's Jalen Rose tokenism charge, and Florida's new Marketplace of Ideas law. Was former President Trump's lawyer unfairly censured simply for being a zealous representative of an unpopular viewpoint? Or was he justly rebuked for using his platform to spread misinformation that led directly to a national crisis? Is a sports commentator's recent criticism of the lone white player on a national Olympic team an example of speaking truth to power? Or is it simply a racist barb camouflaged as righteous indignation? And finally, is Florida's decision to amend the law a level-headed directive to ensure a free marketplace of ideas in an ideologically monolithic university system? Or is it a veiled strategy to inject a steady diet of conservative talking points into the syllabi of unsuspecting college students? This and my friends, so much more this week on TDR. The barbershop marketing mogul, Will Shelton, in, in the flesh. So the book is going good? The book is going excellent, man. You know, it's been getting out there. People have been spreading the word. Um, it's just the perfect timing. It's one of those books where it's not only timely, but it's timeless. It's not only relevant, but it's revealing. That took 42 seconds of us being on the show, Will, and you've already cracking open the wisdom with the quotes. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Just write, write these down. Write I'm, these down. I'm giving a note to our producers right now, you know, live on the show, that they need to pull these audiograms out, and we need to make yeah, social yeah. media assets around them. And it's create, awesome. That Create a tweet storm. Right. <laughs> there you go. That's it. But it, it's good to see you, man. You know, so many people don't even have one book. you got more than one. Oh, man. You know what? I think um, they just get downloaded to me, you know, in the nighttime. And then I wake up and I just start writing and it's just our the pump is already primed. That's interesting. How, how many books have you written, Will? Uh, well, I this is my first official book, but I've written like so many articles that I have, you know, enough material to write probably 10 books. I get that whole idea of downloading too. My wife takes a bath and she'll literally like be in the bath. You know, she does it like a bath every night and she'll come out of the bath and she's got like a head full of stuff she wants to talk about that all got downloaded in that bath. And she even says downloaded just like you did. It's true. You know, really, you know, you just, you really don't even have control over it. 
you know, you just kind of like you wake up or you see something or like you say, you take a bath and then all of a sudden it's just all these thoughts and ideas and, and concepts just come yeah, and, right. you know, you have to do something with it. What's this one broadly about? Like what's kind of the high level? Like who, who, who reads this book? Who's it for? Well, it's for, you know, diversity and inclusion departments, you know, um, it's for the black executive that um, goes into corporate America. And a lot of times what happens is they feel like their hopes and dreams have been shoplifted. Um, they go in there expecting to get, you know, to the sweet C-suite positions. You know, they go from the streets to the C-suites, right? And what happens is they go in there and they feel like um, there's an embargo and there's an imbalance there. And they don't feel like they can be their authentic selves or their true selves. So they end up finding out the hard way that the other side won't sign the contract. And that's that silent agreement. It's that, that psychological contract that's unfulfilled by black high achievers it's like a breach of contract in corporate America. So it's for the black and brown executives and their allies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, go ahead. No, I was, was going to say the, the book itself is actually called The Silent Agreement, right? Because we, we actually hadn't mentioned that. Yeah, exactly. The Silent Agreement, the illusion of inclusion, how to fight with conviction against the broken promises in corporate America. There's a lot there to unpack. You know, it's funny that you said that you mentioned this right now, too, because another book that I just hit, that hit my screen two days ago, maybe it was three days ago, Robin D'Angelo, the one who wrote uh, White Fragility, the famous, mm. the, the huge yeah, yeah, one sure. from like uh -huh. two years ago. She just came out with her new book, and it's kind of like, it's called um, Nice Racism or something like that, but it's basically this idea of these kind of contracts, implicit or explicit, that exist and how... You know, it's almost like neither party addresses it, and they right. both kind of like pretend that things are happening. You know what I mean when they when they aren't, or that things uh, aren't aren't happening when they are. Yeah, and it's this this kind of agreement or non agreement that's that that exists in in real time, and it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot there. Uh, was there an inspiration for this one? Well, yeah, it was an, uh, the inspiration was really after the George Floyd murder, and what happened was you know a lot of these companies after the turmoil and the turbulence and the protests that happened, a lot of big brands started saying, hey, we stand in solidarity with, with the, the black uh, consumer, the black um, uh, people in America. So what happened is that they started to make pledges and they started to say, we're, you know, we're shoulder to shoulder with you. But we found out that there was a truancy of transparency. And what happened is they started asking me, you know, because I work with these corporations and agencies, you know, how do we stand in solidarity? Because there was this fear because the black consumers and the black community started to look under the hood. They started to do a 150 point inspection, a CT scan on the companies right. to see is your solidarity solid or symbolic? Mm -hmm. And that's reflected in the data, too. I mean, like, if you look at all the consumer data coming out of 2020 summer, it all shows that consumers are increasingly skeptical and want further reassurances from, you know, brands and other people of what it is that they're actually doing and not just saying, right? I like that vision of that 150-point inspection because it is. It's like a... 
it's like we're, we're maybe paying attention in a special way and people have to respond. Yeah, because, you know, the brands are asking for the loyalty of the black consumer, right? But how do you get their loyalty without gaining their respect first? You have to get the respect before you get the loyalty. It's like a marriage. It's like, you know, they want your full commitment. In a marriage, your, yeah. your, your, yeah. your wife or husband wants the full commitment, not a part-time lover or a shack up, honey. You know, mm-hmm. so, sure. so you got to gain their respect first. And how do you gain their respect? I'm telling them you got to make the full commitment. You got to make sure that you're, you're making an investment in the community not just sure. on Juneteenth, not just on um, Martin Luther King's right. birthday, but all year round. Now, what's I, what's? Oh, sorry, Jesus. Go ahead. No, I was going to say what's really interesting about that that statement, Will, is that I'm hearing that I'm hearing that exact same sentiment from other communities, right? Like a very recent time this conversation, and someone brought this up, but like, and they were saying, look, we're you know we just we're in the conclusion of Pride Month. And the number of companies that have changed their logos to put a little a rainbow flag in their logo, like that's great. But if that doesn't come with actual support to those communities, like the gay communities, I'll say this it's a very similar kind of comment that you're saying here, which is like, hey, thanks for recognizing me. But if this is all just a marketing ploy and you're not really doing anything for the other 11 months of the year or even for the, that one month where you're highlighting this and it doesn't really matter, then it actually comes up actually worse. So, you know, I, I agree with you. I think this movement where consumers and employees are going to really raise the threshold for wh- how they see the role of those brands need to play in creating impact, I think is only going to continue to get raised. And I think you're seeing it definitely, I think, was sparked a lot by the African-American community. There was actually, you know, and I shared it with Charlie, there is this, I don't know if you heard, heard of this, Well, this uh, Black Musical uh, Action Coalition. They put out this uh, music industry action report card where they went and actually looked at the public pledges that many of those companies within the music industry did as a result of in the wake of the George Floyd you know, murder and protest and seeing what they actually did. So they just very recently, like a week or two ago, they just put out this report card. So we haven't actually dug into it, but I think this is all part of that same movement, right, of consumers coming back and calling out these companies for you know, so not just use it as a, once again as a marketing employee to attach themselves to a movement without actually being part of the movement or actually or impacting that movement. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And, and then you know you go to that point of you know does does your stance line up with your stats? You know, you say you you yeah. you stand up with us, but your stats say you only have two percent of Browns and Blacks in executive positions or running the company. And did Black Lives Matter before the Black Lives Matter movement? You know, there's always been a vacancy for transparency and honesty. And those companies that take occupancy have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Mm -hmm. Do you you think, Will, that that skepticism in particular here, let's focus on the black community. Do you think the skepticism and that kind of 150 point inspection has kind of always existed and just the urgency went up after George Floyd? Or is there something new that happened post-George Floyd that it became like, now I have to do the 150-point inspection? Do you see what I'm saying? Because I look back and look at, you know, Black History Month and Hispanic Heritage Month and all these different things. They've been around for forever. People, you know, trying to like do different things. But now it seems like just the the degree to which people are looking at that and going, that's not enough is what's changed. But like, what, what, how do you peg it? I think what's changed is I think you've had the, the allies that have come up and stepped in and that's uh, created more power. I mean, you never 
you know, know how much power you have until you tap into it. A lot of people give up their power by not believing they have any in the first place. So, you know, we're voting with our $1.4 trillion buying power. That's a lot of power right there. And black people recognize that now. And, you know, after George Floyd and all the protests, when this was global, this just wasn't here in the United States. There was just as many other nationalities marching with us. That that's right. what's changed. Mm, yeah. that's, a, that's a great point. I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And I, I do think a lot of it is actually generational. You know, when you think about younger generations, they're much more active uh, and really care a lot more about these kind of issues, which I think leads to a, a much sort of broader intersection of individuals who care to rise up. Because I was around here in L.A. with the Ronnie Keene riots, and it was so concentrated in these, these communities, right, in Crenshaw and Slauson and all over here. But it wasn't as broad as it should have been when you look at the outrage of what had actually occurred. Yeah, it seemed like a very local story that was happening yeah, when I was watching but when news, you think about something you were participating happening. in. This guy yeah. was beaten for, I don't know for how long it was, but he was like, it was like the first, like, in my mind, like a really public thing. Flashpoint. It should have been a flashpoint and it should have created much bigger kind of res- like, you know, outcome or yeah. reaction that you had like now with, with the George Floyd incident, but, uh, but it didn't. It was still very isolated. Yeah. You know, it, it's one of those things where things will never change until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are affected. Mm-hmm. And that's the good, well said, and that's the, maybe one of the good attributes of social media, right? This connective tissue where everybody can have similar experiences and at least get gain in that perspective. Um, Because, I mean, that was absent, right, during the Rodney King days. It was like, it it was, you were telling me whatever the story was you wanted me to hear, but I wasn't able to actually be connected to this as a live event that impacted me. I do think that it's like a, it's a confluence of different things, right? The generation, the connectivity, the internationality of it. You're very, you're totally right. Same thing with COVID, by the way. It's like, we're all, the whole world's going through the same thing, you know? I think all that kind of drove it. Yeah, it's like we're we're all in the same valley of suffering together. The sand was shifting underneath all of us. So we felt like all of our lives were on life support at the same time. So I think that's one of the things that triggered everything. We were all like in the same boat. And, you know, there was no there was two pandemics. There was a pandemic of, of racism, which there is no vaccine for. And there was the pandemic of COVID, which is the invisible enemy. Yeah. Well, it's quite a confluence. It makes like a, it's like a novel, you know? And it, ex- there you go. Nice. I like that. He's like, <laughs> just keep on dropping them. Keep on dropping them. top em. of me. And you know, the other thing that happened, Will, is a lot of implications to the, to this time of which a lot of, you know, our courage or cringes all relate to some of the implications, right? Yeah. For, for today. The implications that came out of this kind of time period, maybe especially the first one, but yeah. but all on to some degree. So um, you know, we're excited to have you on on the show. Uh, we're gonna we want to get started on uh, on these on these particular topics here. But uh, you know, I think you know the rules. But just in case, right? And we'll for everybody it. listening, we're gonna have Jesus go through the rules of how we play uh, courage or cringe. So but I'm glad be, you're here. Yeah, we're excited to have you here, Will. Um, but today will be all courage or cringe. We have three topics, all very fun ones to talk about. And uh, I'm gonna tee up the topic and all of all of these. And um, you being our special guest, will have the opportunity. Uh, to go first and, you know, how you position whether you think this is courageous or cringeworthy and why, and then we'll go around the room. 
your POV, but uh, these are these are good ones. Because I think to to Charlie's point, these are all related. They're all still within that same kind of t- you know moment in time. That was a combination of COVID, of race relations, of politics and presidential elections, uh, of which we're still seeing a lot of the residual impact from all of that. You know, we are, you know, a year later, but at the same time, there's still a lot of stuff that is still happening now that feels very tied back to what's happened in the middle of 2020. Cool. So let's, uh, let's get started. Will, you ready? All right. So our first courage or cringe, Rudy Giuliani barred from practicing law in New York over election lies. Sounds like that might crimp his style a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So as reported by The Guardian, this past week, the New York Supreme Court suspended Rudy Giuliani from practicing law in the state as part of a disciplinary proceeding over his misleading statements in courts and in public about the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Now, with its, it is, with its decision, the court issued a statement saying that it found uncontroverted evidence that Giuliani made demonstrably false and misleading statements to courts, lawmakers, and the public at large on behalf of President Donald Trump to create a narrative of widespread voter fraud that resulted in a stolen election. They went on to say, the country is being torn apart by continued attacks on the legitimacy of the 2020 election and our current president, Joseph R. Biden. The hallmark of our democracy is predicated on free and fair elections, false statements intended to foment a loss of confidence in our elections and resulting loss of confidence in government generally damage the proper functioning of a free society. Right. The court went on to warn that when such falsehoods are made by an attorney, it erodes the public confidence in the integrity of attorneys admitted to our bar and damages the profession's role as a crucial source of reliable information. So for now, Giuliani's uh, license will be revoked while the court considers possible disciplinary action over his practices. I mean, basically, they're figuring out whether they're going to bar him, right? Disbar him. Disbar him, sorry. No, not bar him. Mm -hmm. Disbar him. Uh, (laughs) Now, two of his attorneys, they provide a statement to The Guardian. And they said, we are disappointed that with the appellate division first department's decision uh, suspending Mayor Giuliani prior to being afforded a hearing on the issues that are alleged. This is unprecedented and we believe that our client does not pose a present danger to the public interest. But we believe that once the issues are fully explored at a hearing, Mr. Giuliani will, re- will be reinstated as a valued member of the legal profession that he has served so well in his many capacities for many years. Now, I thought it would be interesting in this case to look at a, a, a very different perspective because the Guardian did, did have you know, a very specific point of view what they were talking about. So there was actually an opinion piece that I, that I pulled up uh, written uh, for The Hill by Alan Dershowitz um, that basically called this move unconstitutional. Now, you know, Alan Dershowitz, if you guys may not recall, was part of the, of the legal team that represented President Trump in the first impeachment trial and is now advising Mike Lindell, the My, the My Pillow guy, in his suit against uh, Dominion voting systems. Right. So in that piece, he made a, a couple of points. But one, he said that Giuliani was suspended without a hearing and based largely on First Amendment protected statements he made outside of any court of law, but on television, Right. Uh, and the second thing he said, look, while lawyers are not entitled to the full protection of the First Amendment for statements made in court, they should have full protection when they participate in the marketplace of ideas on television, podcasts, or other media, even when representing a client. Yeah. And lastly, he had concerns with the subjectiveness of the rule used by the court to suspend them, right? And Dershowitz has been teaching legal ethics for like 35 years. He also defended O.J. Simpson, right? He, he's been doing this in, in you know, popular and unpopular cases for a long time, decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he's been obviously very tied to the president, to the tr- President Trump's camp, right, um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of what he's been doing recently. But at the end of the day, look, courage or cringe, unfairly penalizing a lawyer for zealously representing their client? 
or justify penalty for using the legal system to spread election lies. Will, we, we've heard the, the tee up. What, what are your thoughts? Courage or cringe? And, and let us know why. Well, I thought it was courage, really. I mean, I, I said, wait a minute. You know, I, when I heard the situation, I thought it was preposterous anyway. So I think what should be barred is the madness. Um, you know, you can't, they're talking about reinstatement. You can't reinstate, you know, madness is is what Rudy Giuliani is kind of all about and confusion and, and, and stirring things up and making polarizing statements that lead to people um, doing things that, you know, it's like just cult following you know, situations, you know, it kind of it opens the door for like things like voter suppression that happened, these laws and these bills that they're passing now. And it kind of like leads into instilling the same thing in the micro invalidations that we have in corporate America. You know, they talk about hauling away controversial statues. They need to haul away the broken culture that's created by these types of uh, professions by people like Rudy. Mm. What, what are your thoughts on the argument, though, of free speech as being a way to defend his comments? And the fact that they were, like, I don't know if I fully agree with that statement, but it's, it does sound that part of the penalizing that he's getting are for statements that were made on television, not necessarily in court. Which, by the way, that was kind of like, if you guys all recall, that was a little bit the crazy thing about this because... Publicly was like, oh, they stole the, you know, the election. And then in court, they're like, no, no, it wasn't actually. It was all these technicalities. They kept on losing. But there wasn't all this mass fraud being alleged in yeah, court. Yeah, there was like a PR it was part like of a the PR, platform right. and a legal part of the platform. But the question here is when you have the same person, same people, the lawyers, right. doing both the PR and the, the legal argument. And what does the law apply to, too? What does the law apply mm-hmm. to when, the, mm-hmm. you know, people talk about it all the time when you're having this conversation in the, in the, in the what do they call it, in the public court, mm-hmm. right? The public square. So your thoughts on that, Will? Yeah, as far as free speech goes, free speech ha- has a high price to it. So I don't think it's really free. Um, I think sometimes that price is too high to pay for the things that you say. Um, you know, you can tell a lie. A lie can get somebody killed. I mean, what happened to, you know, generations ago, just like uh, we remember we just um, talked about and we the history of Tulsa and the the alleged lie that was on a, a black young man that allegedly said something to a white girl in an elevator. We'll and, it all off. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. And and look at what that that whole city and town was destroyed because of an alleged lie. Um, so there's a price That's to pay. <laughs> So you're sure. you're kind of almost wrapping that's the, those statements in the kind of area of non-protected speech, like incitement almost, is what you're... That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that one. It's tricky, though, because again, right, the, the world that we're living in is the... It kind of erases and blurs some of those lines, right? We're not in court. Yeah, we're not in court, but you're a lawyer who has a huge platform precisely because of the work you do in court. Right. And like these things are sometimes hard to understand the difference between... And what you um, could say under free speech, you know, yes, of course, has some certain boundaries 
uh, and what you that's different than what you can say in the law, but the distinction between those two seems to change in people who have very significant platforms that happen to have these particular roles. Right. So, so Charlie, your, yeah. your, your thoughts th- on this? Well, I think the other thing is also Will brings up the whole idea of th- this kind of like um, system that we have. Look, the legal system is adversarial. I mean, make no mistake, right? Sure. So, you know, and, and I'm all for looking at ways to resolve that. But the lawyer's job, like stated in, we've talked about this before, in the statutes, what I sign my name up to, what I say that I'm going to do, or I can be disbarred for not doing it, is zealously representing my client, right? And that's the idea of like going way beyond like what you and I would call reasonable. Like zealousness is not something that's reasonable. So, but, but they also are held up to ethics, right? There's, of course there's they are. plenty of ethics of violation. I think the question here is if you knowingly lie. Yeah. And continue to spread a lie. Yeah. To zealously represent your client is that behavior right. that we think as a society well, that we should like that's that's that should fall within the realm of zealously representing a, a client. I, I don't think it does. I, I don't think it does. It's outside the pale of ze- zealousness. My point is not everybody shares the same moral purview or ethical purview. And sure. so when you say to somebody, zealously represent, right. that may mean something different to you than it does to yeah. me. So I just all I'm saying is the starting point for this discussion is one that says you must sure. do this, okay? So I think we're going to end up all in the same place on this one. I'm a courage as well, but I think there's two important things to tease out here. I think one is the suspension, like what's actually happened, from what some of the arguments that Alan Dershowitz and Giuliani are making now, which is I'm kind of being disbarred in a way without a trial, without a hearing. Now, what's technically happened is a suspension leading to potentially a Mm -hmm. disbarment. But what Dershowitz is saying is like they've basically tried and – adjudicated this already like this guy yeah, you know, that, that, that does sound wrong at least from a procedure standpoint. procedural standpoint yeah. and like if you read the words of this committee they are kind of saying look you know what you're kind of screwed like we're going to suspend you now and we'll have these other things that may include disbarment but it doesn't sound like they've got the openness to look at this thing in a different <laughs> way so 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 yeah. to me i think it's courage for doing what they did i don't believe that it uh what rudy giuliani uh did or this the way he did it in the public square was, um, you know, dif- uh, in keeping with that idea of Zalsi representing his client. I do believe that he should be held accountable for some of those things. But I don't believe with having this feel like it's a fait accompli where no matter what the guy does, he's going to get disbarred yeah, and he hasn't yeah. had a hearing. Like, yeah. I just don't agree with that. So, but ultimately, I'm a courage. Uh, yeah, so I, I think we're going to be three for three here. I'm, I'm also encouraged. Th- look, I think the, the reason I brought in to include Alan Dershowitz's arguments, I actually thought it was a good sort of counter piece to talk about how to look at this a little bit differently. But the thing that I really disagree with, with what he says is this whole idea of the fact that because his comments and maybe some portion of his comments are not done within the court, that that somehow should be treated extremely differently in the case where so many, you know, especially at this level of court proceedings, I really are held in public opinion, right? Like in, in, in public in court of public opinion is what it's always said, right? And the fact that you have the same person making both the argument in, in the court and outside yeah. of the court. Yeah. Like, there is no way to tell jurors, to tell, you know, to tell judges that they should just really treat these comments externally as very different, like all potentially fake comments, and only look at the court the comments that are happening within the court. So for that reason, I just don't think that's a very good argument. I, I'm with you in the sense that it does feel like it has already been tried and convicted without the proper sort of process because of the suspension. But I think the outcome at the end of the day is probably going to be pretty similar. Uh, being that the that it still was being, the part that I really disagree 
with what they did is really trying to use the legal system in a way to try to basically push this false narrative and then using sort of PR efforts to try to validate that false narrative, even when that narrative didn't actually align to what they were arguing in court. Mm-hmm. So that was my, my issue with it at the end of the day. But I look, this is, I think, one that we could probably debate for a little bit, but it sounds like we're all in pretty pretty same page on this one. All landing in the same spot with courage for maybe perhaps different reasons. Um, and we'll see where that one goes. Um, what's next? All right. So three for three. So a good start. Well, we'll, we'll see how long they we'll could, see how you do, last. Will. We might have to, you, yeah. know, you might have to bounce after this next one, but we're, so far you're good. We'll let, you, we'll let you keep going. This is this is a fun one because it, it continues to evolve. Like every day since this first happened, which only happened a few days ago, like something new keeps on popping up. Uh, but ESPN's Jalen Rose says Kevin Love made U.S. Olympic team because of tokenism. So courage or courage on that, right? Uh, so as reported by Fox News, with a little less than a month away from the start of the Summer Olympics, which will be held in Japan, um, as, as you may recall, it got postponed last year because of COVID, but we're not going to run from July 23rd through August 8th. Um, and for the U.S. men's national basketball team, it will be their opportunity to go after a fourth conse- consecutive Olympic gold medal, right, with a squad that's going to be led you know, by Kevin Durant. However, one person is not very happy with at least one of the players selected to represent the U.S. Mm-hmm. So a few days ago, Jalen Rose came out, who was an ESPN uh, a basketball analyst for ESPN, uh, famous member of the Fab Five with Michigan, and was I think he played for a number of different teams, but probably the Patriots is the one that most people probably think of him from um, playing, said that he was upset that Kevin Love, who is white, was on the Olympic roster. Now, he said, and I quote, I'm excited about the roster, and I assume, and I know, we're going to win the gold. But I'm disappointed in something. As I do this show every day, I do it in front of a picture of Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising their fists at the Olympics. I also know the favoritism that Christian Leitner was shown when he got a chance to be put on the dream team ahead of Shaq and Alonzo Mourning, um, but they may, uh, but but they made it to a college player who uh, uh, could even get on, on on and gave his favoritism. But this level of and I got a word for it, Kevin Love is on the team because of tokenism. Don't be scared to make it an all-black team representing the United States of America. I'm I'm disappointed by that. Anybody that watched the league this year knows Kevin Love did not have a stellar season was not the best player of his own t- of his team and did not necessarily deserve to be on the squad. I'm not going to take him off the squad and not put someone someone else on it. I'm going to tell you whose spot that should be. That should be a young man that was born in Bahamas. That is Mac- uh, McDonald's All-American playing high school and college in Phoenix, Arizona, DeAndre Ayton. Uh, should have Kevin Love's spot. And I'm disappointed in Team USA for not having the courage to send an all-black team to the Olympics. Tell us what you really think. Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, by the way, Team USA did already have an all-black team. Uh, 2016. 2016. Yeah. Uh, at the height of the presidential election between you know, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Um, Love has also been previously on the, on the Olympic team in 2012. However, to, to uh, Jalen's point, you know, he did only appear in 25 games this past season with the Cleveland Cavaliers, mm-hmm. right? Um, he was top five on the team in scoring with 12.2 points per game. The number one spot went to Colin Sexton with basically double the points, 24.3 points per game. Also second in rebounds, um, but has emerged as a vital mental mental health advocate for the league, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, DeAndre uh, Ayton, who's the other player that uh, Jalen was talking about, has represented the Bahamas in international competition, and he was on the team during the 2016 Central Basket Tournament, right? Right, right, right. right. So uh, what was interesting here is from those comments, Team USA director Jerry Colangelo uh, defended his choice to keep love in a statement to the New York Post. Now he said... The best reason to say why Kevin Love as an extra as an extra big was because of his international experience. 
Yes, it is true he hasn't played much of anything the last couple of years, but the skills he brings to the table and commitment he's made to physical conditioning, he's a versatile guy up front who can rebound and hit shots. So they said this isn't tokenism. Right. Who's to say how many minutes a guy will play? You're not going to play all 12 players. It was a matter of filling out the roster with role players, right? Um, but at the end, a few days later, Jalen Rose did come back and apologize for his comment. Um, oh, I didn't know this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that just saw this today. Okay. But his apology is pretty funny. He's like, but you know why I'm apologizing for right now? I said, to the game, because I'm what the game made me. I was raised by the all-time greats, and you know what I would never want to do? Disappoint Jenny Rose, which is his mom, mm-hmm. or disappoint the all-time greats that raised me. But uh, but like Cat Williams said, sometimes players mess up. So I apologize to the game. That's who I apologize to. <laughs> yeah. Not Kevin Love, <laughs> to the right. game. So, uh, Super. yeah. So anyways, courage or cringe, journalists calling out clear tokenism with the selection of an aging player due solely to the color for the color of their skin. Or underappreciation for selecting for leadership and intangibles to create a gold-winning team. Hmm. Well, first of all, are you a basketball fan, Will? Yeah, I watch basketball. Uh, um, I watch boxing more, but <laughs> but I do uh, watch basketball. I love boxing as well. We could talk about that one maybe next next time. But yeah, cur- courage or cringe, Will? What what are, what are your thoughts on Jalen Rose's uh, comments? I, th- I think it's gonna have to be courage for him to say that. Because you guys, sometimes you have to have to call a thing a thing. You just have right. to. Um, it almost feels like a reverse tokenism because when you think about tokenism, you usually think about blacks and brown people. You know, it, it feels eerily similar to like in corporate America when blacks and browns are given a token position in like the urban department. And you end up in right. like urban purgatory <laughs> for the rest of your career, <laughs> you know. And it almost feels like, if you think about it, and this is part of the title of my book, it feels like the illusion of inclusion. It's not really inclusion, but it's an illusion by putting him on the team. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, you're, and and uh, as it relates to I mean, so some of the comments that he was making, even with Christian Lehner, what's, what's, your, what's your thought on that? Because his argument that Christian Lehner was also another example of tokenism, people may not think of him now relative to Shaq or Alonzo Mourning, but that guy was a stud in college. And his team was was like, it was, a, it was Duke, right, that, that, mm-hmm. he, that he played for? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I remember Shaq, they didn't, you know, they got eliminated. I think Alonzo as well. Um, yeah, he had better so, stats for sure. Yeah, he had better stats. So you talk about like a college player that was super dominant. Like Shaq really came into his own, I think, more when he was in Orlando even though he's already a, a dominant uh, college player at uh, LSU. But even putting it back even on Christian Lehner, do you see that as well as another example of tokenism in that case? I think that was a different category to me because he was like a, he was a college player, number one. And that was a different era as well. And I think, you know, him just being white wasn't the tokenism part of it. It was like maybe they they just wanted to add a, col- a college a kid that just came out of college to the team and he was a dope player i mean he had like really really good skills although he ended up his career didn't in the pros didn't turn out out, (laughs) like like they thought it would but i think i would put those two in two different categories yeah yeah for sure Uh, and i'm curious did you see the comments by scotty pippen it's not part of our courage or cringe but did you see the interview that he had? Uh, who did he have? I'm blanking who he was, he was speaking to. Oh, um, yeah, I don't remember. But he was talking about Phil Jackson and basically called him a racist. Did you, did you see that, Will? Was this 
this is something he currently said or something that he said a few years, a few years. No, no, so, yeah, so, literally yesterday. Yeah, so yeah, so Scotty Pippen was getting interviewed, and I'm blanking right now uh, who he was being interviewed by, and he was talking about. Um, it was a season when uh, when Jordan was not on the team, right? When Jordan was playing playing baseball, and he specifically Dan Patrick, talk, Dan, Dan Patrick, Patrick, yeah, yeah, he was on yeah. the Dan Patrick show. Thank you. And he was talking about this play that was set up. Uh, I think it was during the playoffs where Tony Kuch, Kukoc and ended up taking a final shot. And this was a season where you know Scotty was the, the the primary player for the Bulls that entire season. I mean, he had basically been carrying the team, and his whole argument is that. Being that the, that the, he should have gone the last the last shot to win or, or lose the game, and the fact that this play, play was drawn up for for Tony Kukoc meant that um, that Phil Jackson was racist. And part of his justification for that, he talked about his uh, the fact that Phil Jackson, after leaving the Lakers, uh, in that moment where he left and then came before he came back, right when he wrote the book and kind of called out Kobe Bryant, there was another example of him being yeah. a racist, right? And um, he doubled down. He was oh, su- he super down. serious about yeah, it. Yeah, super hard. Which to me, both of those just seem kind of like odd comments to make about Phil Jackson and being racist. Like you can talk about favoritism with certain players, but that that feels like. Um, and also coming from Scotty, who's Might like be he's been the, like unfortunately very bitter his entire career. <laughs> Whether it's for contract negotiation, being the second guy, second best guy in the team, maybe always feeling like he should have been the best guy mm. somewhere else. If only you know he had lived a different era than than Jordan. Than Jordan. Uh, I Good mean, it's a that. lot, a lot of that. You know what, Jesus? I think that's misplaced anger, misplaced uh, inadequacy, misplaced insecurity that he has. That's where those statements come from because there's been never a sign of Phil Jackson being racist. I think Scotty's just been hurt, bitter envious jealous and those feelings you know have manifested in him you know saying certain things throughout the years that's where i think that comes from because it's irrational to even say that yeah it's 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 actually a little sad frankly when you hear him speak to how like hurt and bitter he still is now yeah it's 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 one thing then but it's and it's tough to be number two in any scenario but well but to hang on to it what is this 30 years later that contract like really tough contract negotiation since then is that 30 years i always lose track of this yeah at least 30 years ago yeah three decades that is rough, man. It's a long time. It's a long time to be bitter. He should have at least let go with one hand. He's still holding on with both. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well said. Exactly. You can still grab on a little bit, but like thumb and forefinger. You know what I mean? Um, um, you want me to go? Yeah, go ahead, Charlie. This is so interesting, too, to, to have this conversation because I almost feel like you have to tease out a number of things, right? There, Number one is... Is this something that is speaking truth to power? And like Will just said, just saying the thing what it is. And I agree, it is that, because he thought and felt that way and did say that thing. Then the question of it is, is the the thing that he said racist? And then the third thing is, is it okay to say something racist if it happens to be true or happens to be your opinion that it's true? It's like, there's all these things, right? So let me give you an example, right? The example Mm -hmm. of like, uh, you know, a Latino person is an example. We can say, well, yeah, look, it's a Latino party, so you're going to show up there late. And before you leave, you're going to say goodbye to everybody 12 times because this is how we do it, right? But somebody else from outside that, there may be a lot of truth in that statement, right? But the question of that is, is that like a... There's a lot of truth in that statement. There's a lot of truth in that statement, right? But then you have to consider (laughs) who who can say that statement. Right, right. It doesn't change its truth if somebody else says it. And then on top of that, can you use that truth as a way to kind of bring somebody down? That's like a third thing, right? Yeah. So look, there's a lot that's going into this thing for me, but ultimately it nets out in cringe for me. 
Because first of all, I don't believe for a second that the decision was we just can't have an all black team for obvious reasons. It's already happened. And number two, if anything coming out of the summer we just had, it'd be like an additional show of solidarity or frankly, sure. it's almost like it's a, it's a less, um, it's a less difficult marketing move to make to do an all black team. It's actually, a, a, it, it means more for them to do it that way, in my opinion. So even if you aspire to everybody's lesser angels, the decision would be more black players, not less black players if we're ascribing something bad to this decision. So I don't believe that at all. Um, now, having said that, is everything that Jalen said about this other guy right? Look, I don't follow basketball like you guys do, but yeah, it sounds like all the stats are right, so there's probably some truth in that. Yeah, but, but you can find, I mean, there's plenty of players that are much better than Kevin Love in okay. the NBA. Yeah, I, I, I would that, say there's actually a lot of players who are not on the squad who are better than the players that are on the squad. And Right. I mean, that's also, you know, it's a bunch of people that just, they just don't want to do it anymore. But those players who have maybe better statistics, maybe they don't have the same international experience or they don't have the experience of being on this or, actual team or, or whatever like it may superstars be. who just don't care to go anymore. Don't even care to go. Yeah, look, I, right? don't, I don't know, but I'm just saying that that, that part kind of doesn't doesn't wash for me. And the other thing that kind of you know brought me over the top is the idea of imagining this sort of in reverse, maybe in a different sport, right? Not in basketball, but let's say like, for instance, consider hockey, right? 97% of the NHL is white. The other 3% is a, is a variety of different ethnicities. Of that 3%, there's 26 black players. Of the 26, 20 are from Canada, <laughs> okay? So there's six African-American uh, NHL players. So I kind of imagine myself, one of those players, like for instance, Keandre Miller, who, who plays for the Rangers. I imagined if like, we're talking about the Olympic hockey team, right? And on that hockey team, we're going to put Keandre Miller on that team, right? It's all white guys because that's the makeup of the NHL, but we're going to put Keandre Miller on that team. And somebody saying, oh, this is tokenism. That person would be fired, run from their job, and the the, the yeah. network would shut down. Literally, if that actually happened, <laughs> the so, grid will, will yeah, stop. The, the matrix would just shudder, right? Yeah. So, so we got to also admit that reality as well. And so, for me, all those factors, you know, push me over to cringe. I agree with you, Will, that it is what it is in the sense that this is really what he felt. But I still don't believe that that justifies saying it because I think you can make a lot of arguments in that direction of just me saying something that even even may be true, but it's not the right moment or the right way to say something because you're doing it as a way to kind of bring somebody down. So that's ultimately why I'm a, I'm a cringe on this one. I, I Okay. I am uh, I'm very split on this one because from a basketball standpoint, I completely get the argument that there is no reason why Kevin Love should be in that team. From a pure, like, just yeah. you think about the best players, not even the best, like, middle-of-the-road players in the NBA right now. Kevin Love has been a great player for a long time in his career, but he's been very hurt for a while. And he's been on a constant decline now for, for a long time, right? He's also a really good guy, right? He's a guy that's all about, like, he's been very proactive about talking his own mental health. He's a great ambassador of the game. So there's some marketing if, value if, made for If anything, I think the reason, I actually don't think he got picked because he's white. I actually think he got picked because he's a great ambassador, ambassador to the game. Like, he's the kind of guy that you want to have on the team to basically tell a story because he is someone that I think represents what's really, not that these guys are not, but I'm mm -hmm. saying, like, he's one that's been a sort of a shining example of that. Um, but I can understand from a basketball analyst looking at this and be like, why do we have this guy who, like, he is the fifth best at scoring in his own team. <laughs> in his own team. There's right. four guys that are much better than him in his own team. See what I'm saying? Like, like that's weird. That's a weird thing. It's to, a weird thing. So it's a weird thing to, yeah. to, to, to say. At the same time, when I look at that squad, Steph Curry's not on it. 
right? You can make the argument, why do you have any other player, you know, Kevin Durant, fine, great, mm-hmm. right? But someone like Steph Curry, like all these other players that are really, really good are not are not part of the team. So they're not, ob- you're not obviously picking the best players that could be on the team. But yet again, you could pretty much, I mean, not in any squad, but I just think the NBA players are at such a higher level yeah. than anywhere That's internationally that goal. you're almost always, I mean, there's a reason why for a long time it was only college players that actually was part of the, the uh, you know, the the, the, the the Olympic squad for that reason, just to like make it a little bit more competitive, I think. I don't know. I don't know if there was like a reason why they, they wouldn't take professionals, but it wasn't the dream team that they brought in. And then since then, it's been like basically sweeping everybody except for one or two, two times where they lose to... Whomever, right? Spain or something. Yeah, something random like that. Spain's actually usually pretty pretty good team, but um, yeah. So I don't know. Drum I, th- roll. I think it's I think it's Drum probably roll. cringe, just because I think if if you're gonna make that statement, then own it, right? And to me, that what made it more cringe is his apology to the game. Like, dude, then then don't say it. Like, then why then why are you saying this, right? Because you, your mom called you. Probably what happened. Be like, what are you doing? Like, what, why are you saying this kind of stuff? Because so, that's, so he's just, literally apologizing to his mom. Just so I'm clear, and though, to the game. Just so I'm clear, though, the 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 statement was he's a token because he's white. You would have been yeah, okay yeah. with he's a token because he's this other value stuff. I, I, I think it's for the, for a different reason. You I, would I, have been courage in that case. I just think he's he's right in saying that that it is a token tokenism pick. Got it, but not because as a as a player okay. and where I can he understand is currently that in his career, I can he should not argument. be on that team anymore. Yeah, and that's just so yes on token, no on the the he, race. So part. I, I agree on that part. I just don't necessarily put it towards being ex- solely because of his race. I think that Kevin Love represents like a really shiny part, just like if you have Steph Curry. Steph Curry, like for the most part, like he is a great ambassador to you yeah, know, of course. To, so if you're not gonna have a Steph Curry. Kevin Durant is it, man. I mean, Kevin Durant has a lot of, and I don't know if you follow the stuff with Kevin Durant, but he's not always like the most like PC guy. He has a lot of issues, man. So to anchor a team around Kevin Durant, who's a great player, but he's got but some baggage. He has, a lot, he has a lot of baggage. He gets into it with a lot of different people. I think you need to have those ambassadors. Yeah, I and I think okay. Kevin Love plays that role in the team. And I, I would, and I think Jalen knows that, man. That's why I, I wish he wouldn't have said it in that manner. But to me, it becomes cringe. Maybe will push me over the top. His apology to the game and to his mom, and then make no statement about about what he actually said and who he like, actually offended. Yeah, Will, what do you think? Or Kevin Love, or by the way, or or the t- or the team USA, team USA, right? Which is really who should be apologizing to. Yeah, you know what? I I I totally agree with both of you guys. You know, it you know, my courage was like a soft courage anyway. It was kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, almost a cringe, but to hearing both you guys' perspectives, it 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 could go either way and it's fine because um, you know, it's so much stuff to pull out of it. Uh, when you yeah. go to the deep end of the pool with it, you know, how he said it, the the tone that he said it in and then, you know, his his alleged apology. <laughs> After. Right, his apology, not apology. <laughs> uh, I know that's, right? that's good though. That's what the show's about. So I mean, that t- that kind of discussion is good. Um, you know, to kind of hear the different perspectives. But yeah, I mean, look, it's a flashpoint. I didn't know about the apology, so that's interesting. Maybe there'll be some further evolution in it. But uh, it's uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm waiting for the fallout with Scotty Pippen. Yeah, that one's just, that'll be next yeah, week. That'll be we'll next week. That's a really interesting one, but I think yeah, in the Scotty thing, it's just yeah, it's it's sad for him. It's yeah. sad you see hearing him now. Like this guy is a great player. Maybe he just likes to stay in the news, and he just needs to say something every once in a while. So, <laughs> but he was like, you should, you guys should watch the video. Yeah, at, at one point he tells Dan Patrick, "You understand English?" He Ooh. says that to him because like Dan Patrick is sitting like, like, what, what are you talking like, about? Yeah, like, it kind of, he's doing one of those like, what are you talking? Like, how could you say that? 
equates racism. Like maybe you can say he's disloyal when he when he when he made the comment about about Kobe, about him writing a book and trying to throw Kobe Bryant under, under the bus. Like okay. Right, what is that automatically? Why is that mm-hmm. racism? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can yeah. say he's disloyal, sure. And and yeah, and uh Scotty will like do you understand English? I don't know how like, many I don't know how many people just generally speaking are, you know, challenging the viewpoints of very successful wealthy ex-athletes. Like it's just not it's probably not a, a thing he hears a lot of challenging on just general points of view. So know, maybe that's it, why. Maybe it, it, it's sad, man. Maybe guy, he was snappy because of that. He needs a hug. I mean, it's just it's just not not good. Right, we'll bring it. But uh, anyway, we need hugs after this next one. So, yeah, so our last courage of cringe, another another phone one. Uh so the Governor DeSantis signs law requiring college faculty students and students to take surveys on beliefs. Have you guys, just out of curiosity, Will, have you, or Jesus, have you seen the YouTube series called Florida Man? I have not, no. It's hysterical. What, what is Florida Man? Florida Man, because it's always a news article like Florida Man, you know, like stopped at a light and like an alligator jumps out of the woods. There's uh, always like something in Florida, right? Oh, so Florida, Florida Man. Yeah. So I was thinking DeSantis could be Florida Man in this case. You guys should check it out though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a funny mix. I think depending on where you fall in the political spectrum, you either think... You think extremely highly, highly. Of, of of Governor DeSantis, or is the complete opposite, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's he's it's a really interesting because people have have sort of he seems primed for that twenty twenty four is what oh, you're saying. Sh- that's exactly what you he's just doing. described the key characteristics in our but, current political. But system. That's exactly what he's been. I mean, you and I have well, I've talked about this a lot. Sure. Like, I think ninety nine point nine percent of the of the things that he's doing are to set up a a, a presidential run. For yeah, sure. DeSantis Harris. It's like an MMA. I'm going to start selling the tickets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pay-per-view. Let's go. I don't know, man. I'm not convinced about about, about uh, Kamala. Well, you got to talk to your yeah, own yeah. people about that because that's, yeah, that's yeah, who I'm they not, picked. I'm not convinced. Um, all right. So this past week, Florida's Governor DeSantis signed HB 233. All right. Now, this legislation will require public universities to survey students and staff annually about their beliefs to assess viewpoint diversity on campuses. Uh, now the bill does not specify uh, what it will what will be done with survey results, but the scientists suggest budget cuts could be imminent if universities and colleges are found to be indoctrinating students. Now about the law, DeSantis said, "We obviously want our universities to be focused on critical thinking, academic rigor, and academic rigor. We do not want them to be uh, we do not want them as basically hotbeds of state ideology." It used to be thought that a university campus was a place where you be exposed to a lot of different ideas. Unfortunately, now the norm is these are more intellectually repressive environments, right? Now, under House Bill 233, right, surveys will be conducted annually on campuses to assess viewpoints of diversity and intellectual freedom. Now, the State Board of Education will shall select or create an objective, nonpartisan, and statistically, I can never say that word. Statistically? Statistically mm-hmm. valid survey to be used by each institution which considers the extent to which competing ideas and perspectives are represented. And members of the college community, including students, faculty, and staff, feel free to express their beliefs and viewpoints on campuses and in the classrooms. Yep. Right? Okay. Now, the measure was among three education bills signed by DeSantis on Tuesday. Other measures included an expansion expansion of civic education for K-12 schools, including instruction about the perils of communism and totalitarian governments. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, the the law goes into effect July 1st. The survey was conducted annually with reports published each September, starting September 1st, 2022. And these are state schools, to be clear. 
These are not yeah, all schools in Florida. Well, it will right? be private, right? Because they're not getting any, right. any state funding. So anything that they have, it's all tied to funding, right? That's like the threat, right? Yep. Like if you don't do this, then we're going to cut funding. One, one thing that I, that I it's a slight, slight tangent, but I did go into and actually read the bill. So did I. Which is really interesting when you read a bill. I mean, half, it's actually hard to understand, frankly, because it's so repetitive and how, how they write, write it. But there's a couple of things that, that sort of stood out. Of course, there is the annual, you know, assessing intellectual freedom and viewpoint diversity at certain institutions, providing requirements for the assessment, authorizing the State Board of Education to adopt rules. But there was one that I really, like, stood out to me a lot where they put prohibiting the State Board of Education and Board of Governors, respectively, from shielding certain students, faculty, or staff from certain speech, right? Which to me is like, that's actually really interesting because my, my first thought, like, oh, great. So now they're for actually critical race theory. Mm-hmm. Right, that's my thing. Like, okay, you're for viewing different kinds of speech, different kinds of theories here, and I think that's what this actually does do. It does not, because in an interview with Fox News, DeSantis specifically said, "We're going to get the Florida political apparatus involved so we can make sure that not a single school board member who supports critical race theory right, is basically getting everyone out." As mm-hmm. a matter of fact, he's not actually taught in Florida. Mm-hmm. He is very, very opposed to critical race theory. But yet, when you read the law, it feels like it's like the ex, ex, basically the exact opposite of saying that you want to have this really broad diversity. And yeah, so I to me, that that was like a big disconnect between we'll statements you it. just you yeah. just made versus what at least this law is. Because when you read the law, it was like, oh, that actually sounds really interesting as a way to you sure. know encourage uh, diversity, right? So, courage or cringe need a legislature to encourage diversity of thought or political counter move meant to drive its own conservative indoctrination. Will, um, your thoughts, courage or cringe on uh, DeSantis signing this uh, this bill? This is a deep one, man. I mean, <laughs> there's just no way out of it here. Uh, so it's, it's a 100% cringe because it, it's designed to obfuscate the real facts. It's kind of like projecting someone's bad deeds onto the victim's of structural racism who are merely trying to fight for equality. And it's like using deeply held counterfactual arguments to do it, you know? Um, if if I'm going to be honest, it's kind of like fear is really the motivating force beneath all of this. Um, and there's a quote by Isabel Wilkerson from her book, and she said, what we face in our current day is not the classical racism of our forefathers era, but a mutation of the software that adjusts to the updated needs of the operating system. Hmm. Mm. That's deep. That's super deep. That's super deep. We should have a whole show just about that. Cause I agree hundred percent with that. I've talked about it on this show. I just, the, the different permutations of it in today's world, especially in certain geographies, but interesting. Do you give it, Will, any credit to at least, look, if you were to take out, because this is when I, this is the reason why I struggled as I thought about this. If you take out DeSantis, if you take out Florida, and you simply said there is a law in place to make sure that how we're educating our, our students, you're making sure that, that you're trying to encourage as much as you can diversity in thought to actually have students get exposed to different philosophies, different points of view, which feels very counter culture to what we're seeing a lot of now, right? There is, obviously, there's a whole, that's why I, I sort of joked about critical race theory, because there is so, such a movement around people that are so against banning it and even talking about it and even be in any sort of realm of conversation. 
you have that. You have people that want to sort of, you know, basically turn the whole thing upside down. You have people that want to keep it exactly sort of a very pristine version of what this country has always been. And you have these like really opposing points of view that if both had their way, you wouldn't necessarily get mm-hmm. both sides of the conversation. So if you take, uh, once again, the person, the state out of it, do you give any kind of credence to what they're trying to do? Or even the way that this is written, you have concerns with it? Yeah, I would go to the point, even the way it's written, it's it feels like a tactic that they regularly use to confuse and manipulate and to almost keep their knee on the necks of African-Americans while portraying themselves as the victim of things. Mm-hmm. But rather than grappling with the painful truth, they have a history of, you know, being, you know, power seeking and trying to twist things up. Um, in an attempt to shift responsibility and to rationalize their own dark tendencies sometimes. That's what I see. Right, right, right. Wow. Okay. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. Are you going to go or you want me to go? Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, so look, I think here is, again, with some of these things, you have to kind of take I like I like the exercise you just suggested, right, Jesus, about like imagine if this was happening not in Florida or not right. whatever, and it doesn't carry this all this other baggage and just read the actual document for what it is. With the exception of the the phrase that you just uh, pointed out, which I have to honestly reflect on some more because I hadn't thought about that one too long. The idea of this of the shielding, right? I mean, I read the definition of what shielding means, but I think what they t- technically mean for that is shielding points of view that may not be progressive or left-leaning, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, I have to look that's at what, that. Yeah, that's, that's the I have to look at that more deeply. Yeah. Um, but in the absence of that, I just wonder what mechanisms to employ for state schools to make them more diverse environments ideologically because they currently, the data indicates they simply are not. I spent a lot of time on Jonathan Haidt's um, site, a uh, righteous mind, and he's got another one called. Uh, he, he's the guy who wrote the coddling of the American mind, mm-hmm. and he's been on like every. He's a long time um, uh, sociology. He's a social social psychologist at uh, NYU, and he's been in like all the shows and all the podcasts and all that stuff. But uh, here's the data that's really interesting, and I just wonder how to counterman this. Just going back thirty years, right? We we're just talking about the Bulls in the '90s. I mean, go back to that time period, right? 1990. In 1990, you had 42% of college uh, professors who would identify as being far left. You had about 40% who would identify themselves as moderate, and you had about 18% identifying as conservative. Right? That was 1990. You go to today, that 42% has become something like 65% identify themselves as far left. This is across the country. Mm-hmm. With the moderate in somewhere in the you know higher to mid 20s and the conservative one also dropping from 18 to about 12 so significant drops in the identification of college professors as moderates and even as conservatives although that really hasn't been that big even going back to 1990 and so what you see is a significant increase in people in in the staff having far left um, you know ideologies, and so I wonder myself, okay, if that is like basically the seventy percent of every conversation that my kid is going to get into, how can I advance the notion of what I believe in that, especially in state schools, that they should have that exposure to a variety of different points of view and perspectives? Mm-hmm. 
what other mechanism can we do? Now, the, the thing that's the most glaring about this law is it doesn't say what it does with the data. Because you would say, okay, we're going to do this survey. Well, I mean, he hinted that he will take funding away from the university. But it's not in the if law. They, if they sign. That's what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. It's not in the law, right? So he can if say that, but he's not going to be governor student. forever. The law presumably would outlive him. So m- my point is sure. that should be in there and explain exactly what it is. Um, but, but I find it hard to land on cringe on this one by the letter of what the law was that was written. And what I'm seeing as a mechanism for state schools, which is you have to ensure that you're having a, a free marketplace of ideas where people can see different things. And the data right now just shows that the overwhelming proportion of people are not doing that. Now, maybe, and this is the last thing I'll say, you could say, Hey, but come on, just because you self-identify 70% of the staff at a university as being far left doesn't mean that all they teach are those ideologies. Okay. But again, imagine if the inverse were true. Imagine if 70, 80% Mm -hmm. of the staff was conservative. Would you really buy that they're not advancing the conservative kind of principle and ideology? So for me, all of those reasons in in a complex subject to be sure, but that's the reason why I came down on courage on this one. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that's probably the argument that you would hear anyone that really is f- like for this kind of bill and the justification. The thing that I found interesting were twofold. One is, and I, I really think about it this way, because when I read the letter of the law of what they're trying to do, not how they're doing it, but what they're trying to do, what they're trying to do, I, I can understand. How they're doing it, I do not understand at all. Right? Okay. And the reason the higher they're doing it, I don't understand, is that they're basically looking to survey what people believe. And if they see that the beliefs are too left-leaning, that they're gonna they're threatening to take away funding from the schools. What that sounds to mm-hmm. me, that's basically what it is, right? Definitely, that's not what I read. But, no, no, but, but they're, they're saying, the reason why they're doing it, look, let's, let's get yeah. back. They're doing it because they feel that universities are indoctrinating students, mm-hmm. which means you're indoctrinating them with left-leaning viewpoints, Right. So they're going to survey the staff. They're going to survey the students to see what are their viewpoints, liberal, progress, progressive, or conservative, et cetera, right? So the question here is if you have two – basically, let's throw that forward. If you have if, 80% if two, of one thing. If 80% of people are, are, are liberal, then like, okay, then they're being indoctrinated. Then but, all but you can say – But wouldn't it ring the, the same bell if it was 80% feeling conservative? Sure, yeah, but it's fine. But that's not, what we're, that's not the reason why they're doing this. Otherwise, they, you would guarantee there would be no House bill being pushed right now by Governor DeSantis as he felt that the schools in, the, in, the, in, his, in his state were very conservative-leaning already. Let's just be real. That would not happen. So that really is the concern for him, right? It's like you're too left leaning in the ideology. We're indoctrinating these these students, so therefore we're going to measure how they view things politically, whatever. And then based on that, if you're too left left leaning, then we we may we may threaten your 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 um your um your Correct. funding or too right leaning. Sure, Charlie. But once again, they're not doing it because they're too right leaning. I, I, this I, is, this I is get a, it. But what is the outcome? The outcome is what the, the, you can only r- write laws one way. But but right. But you literally just said the reason why this is happening is because you have seventy percent of 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 universities. So I, I get that the that the law is written so that it could be doable. Yeah. But it's also be realistic about the practicality of what is actually. Doing. I want to get Will in here, but I will say one quick thing. Just at, where where I read this, where I think you and I are not not seeing the same thing, is I see a law that says that the survey is to be used to consider the extent to which competing ideas and perspectives are presented, for sure, including the st- faculty and staff, and that they feel free to express their beliefs and viewpoints on campus in the classroom. So if that's what I'm measuring, if that's what I'm measuring, competing viewpoints. Right, right. But, but wouldn't, once, <clears throat> but wouldn't that people, give me an A plus if I got a lot of competing viewpoints? Right. That's the reason why I disagree with the way this, this thing is done, because okay. it's, they're, they're lying to themselves when they say this. It's just not true. Okay. They're doing this. It's A, you have a conservative uh, uh, governor, 
I get it. Who's trying to get more political points because he wants to run for president. I get it. You you write in the way in a manner that I agree and with you. And you have a real challenge. If, if, you, if you write, if you read the the the, the law, it's like oh, okay, that's actually I see what you're trying to do. But the the practical part of this is that you're not doing this because you already have a very conservative leaning thing, right? You're not. You have the opposite. You have a very liberal thing. So to me, it's like okay. So then, really, what you're trying to do, and this is the part where I don't understand it from a from a conservative viewpoint. Usually, conservatives are, are very adamant of saying we shouldn't have parity of outcome. We should have parity of opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Maybe not parity, but you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? E- equality. This equality yeah, mm-hmm. Equality of outcome is not what we're looking for. We're all equality of opportunity. But what you're doing with this law is you're trying to generate equality of outcome. You're trying to say the outcome of whatever the education is, is that people should have a very balanced perspective. I think that would be true if they said that we want to make sure that conservative points increase from 20% to 50 at least. Then you would say, I want more conservative things. But the way this law is written, if it's 80% conservative, it would trigger the fines and all the things as well. I, I, I got the, but let's, let's get past so the. My it, question is, how do you write the law? I got it, Charlie. Mm-hmm. But let's get past the theoretical, the reality of why they're doing this, right? Yeah. You, you can, the your reality does of, not make sense in the context the you have 70% of, 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 of professors that are already liberal. Then it, it, I can make the right. case it that the reality, that, the reality right? for why they're doing it will will go to you is that there's a monolithic let me, ideology. Let me, right finish now. My, let me finish my yeah. point. So that's one, right? The second one is they actually are not even honest about that thought that you want balance of thoughts because the same governor who's saying that he wants to have a balanced approach of different thought processes is also adamantly against critical race theory and has already been public about saying that I will oppose anyone that gets on the school board that even believes in this so they can't even be introduced into the, into, the, into the system. So you're not for having different perspectives. You're not for having different points of view that you don't agree with. Right. So why say that publicly mm-hmm. in interviews, <clears throat> right? And then turn around like I'm writing this law because I feel really strongly about having a balanced point of view. So to me, it's false in terms of what it's in, the, in trying to create equality and outcome. I have an issue with that. And it's also false because you're also not being honest with yourself. I agree with you. The way it's written, it sounds like a great idea. I think the way that you're implementing it doesn't is not a great idea because you're trying to measure outcomes as saying that that's the reason why. Look, there we are. We think about Gen Z, Gen Z folks and they're, a lot of them are much more liberal. That's just what they, the kids are just much more, you know, uh, uh, progressive. So now we're going to change their whole education because we don't like the way that they that, that kids sure. think. And there's people See that, what I'm saying? Yeah, agreed. But there's people that don't think that that just happens in a vacuum. Sure. Like they just come out of the womb that way. Will, what do you think? Yeah, oh, this is good. Well, I'll jump in here because I'm going to break this down because it goes to what I believe. You're talking about equality, but mm-hmm. what about the quality of the equality? Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about the indoctrination. You're talking about, you know, how like, a lot of young, the young generation is progressive, but there's they're progressive because of what how the culture is. Um, we behave how we believe, right? So this is like a war on the war, and it's really a war between freedom, fear, and persecution. When it comes down to it, think about it. There was a bill passed. I think in 1971, people forgot about this. You know how people think now how like a, a, a majority of people believe marriage is just a piece of paper now. Mm-hmm. People are willing to live together. They don't want the full commitment. Forget it. We'll just shack up. Yep. Now, do you know how that happened? Because about 1971, was governor of California. Back then in the in the early 70s, late 60s, Marriage was really upheld and it was a high esteem of people staying together in families and, you know, two parent households. You know, now it's not today, but back then it was. So you couldn't just go to court like now and say, 
we're having problems. We want to get divorced. They didn't let you get divorced. They would tell you to go home and work it out. So, so many people kept going to court and wanted to get divorced. Ronald Reagan signed a law. It was called the No Fault Divorce Law. You've both heard of that law, right? Yeah, for sure. It was, it was passed in 71 or 72. Two years later, after he passed it, just about every other state did too. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward till today, like almost 50 years later, why do you think people think marriage is just a piece of paper? Because the culture went that way and it was almost indoctrinated in everybody's mind. And progressively, it got to the point where we're once it's no fault. We could go to court. Everybody kept doing it. And now we're here to where marriage is just a piece of paper. And it wasn't in 1971. When you sign these kind of bills, you have to think about the ramifications 30, mm-hmm. 40, 50 years down the line. Yeah. And I agree with that. that there's definitely implications to that, especially that no fault of divorce. I think we find ourselves parking our cars in the same garage on that one, Will. On this one, the thing that I keep coming back to is what would you do? Because either presumably you agree that that places of secondary education should be places where a person is exposed to different points of view, or you don't. If you mm-hmm. believe that it is, then maintaining that free marketplace of ideas should be important. How do you do that in a world where 80% of the educators roughly think one way? That sounds very monolithic. And so what I ask you, okay, throw this law out, throw it out, mm-hmm. doesn't exist, forget it. Do you think that's a problem? And if you do, what would you do about it? What I would do is I would invest in having more different types of ideology being offered to students in the schools. Mm-hmm. I would offer more critical race theory and other theories, by the way, that I'm, I would offer Marxism, communism. I would offer every single one out there because well, like, it's okay to actually learn about now. other people, like what, like, like other philosophies, sure. other type of, of economic uh, systems. Like, I think we, we've gone to the point that but my frustration is I feel like there is this, like this fear that somehow we learn about something else, like it like infect us and we can't think right. These are college, we're talking about primary here in college, right? So college students, so to me it's like invest more in the opportunity, right? To your, to, the, to the point that the, the comparison I was trying to make between opportunity and outcome, invest more in the opportunity. And if the outcome is still more progressive viewing students, then that is what it is. I agree with you 100%. That, that's, I'm, I'm okay with that. But so, in this mm-hmm. case, you're not doing that. What you're doing is you're trying to penalize the, stu- the, the, the schools for having students that are more, in this case, more progressive. Even though the, I agree with you. The law is written so that you're saying that you want balance. Okay, but then make the balance be on the other side, on the input, not the output. Right. So that, that would be that's the way that I, that I think will, will be a better I, way to think about it. But mm-hmm. the thing that I put back on Governor DeSantis is that you're not honest about your own thought or your own so-called position that you want equality of thought because then why are you so adamantly against this other philosophy and so public about it? I get You know that. why? Because it's a that. great political position to have. I get because that. Because you're going to run for president in three and years. And he may be the most hypocritical See what I'm saying? Like, like the, that's the You're right. But that's may, my issue with it. Right. But in a court of law, so, uh, you know what the judge would say? That's not the question. That's not what's at, at trial here. What's at trial is this bill. And yeah, so but, Governor DeSantis' personal opinion or behavior has nothing to do with this. It does because he gets to decide whether or not he cuts funding or not. Well, that's... Y- that, yes, that's, that's why the outcome matters. That's, that's why the law matters. That's true. But again, yeah. he won't be the governor forever. And this thing For will sure. presumably so the still exist. Right? So they but, should but, rewrite the law to talk about what's actually in it afterwards. They should, yeah, I think they should rewrite the law to make it more about the input, not the output. And rewrite the law to what is the actual outcome of what happens when you find a school that doesn't have yeah. the right level that of That we agree then, with. Then fine. I also then think that, that the, the ideologies that you mentioned, communism, Marxism, et cetera, 
Those are not hard to find, Jesus, in the current system. That's my point. My point is those things Good. are in great, awesome. They should be. But like, what isn't there is the is the is the question. That's what the issue is. What isn't in those ideologies? Because finding a postmodernist or a Marxist college professor, dude, that's like throwing a rock and hitting. Like you're going to hit one every time. So the question is, how do we get the other points of view in there? That's the issue yeah, to yeah. me. So, anyway. so that's why I think you should invest more in actually providing those resources for the schools to offer more of those courses. Okay. Very good. Will, last word. Last word is we fight for, but everything we get will be a fight. Well, um, a, you know what the, I'm doing? Man, I'm printing you're that the, up. I'm putting that up in the studio. You're, you're the I'm going to print that out and put it up in the studio. I can't wait to read your book, man, because I'm literally going to be, it's like a highlighter. The thing's going to weigh 20 pounds by the time I get done with it. There's going to be so much of that wet highlighter in there. Um, Will, how do you uh, how do folks follow your work? Uh, all the stuff that you're doing with uh, you know with the barbershops and everything else in your book, uh, you know, give yourself a little bit of a shout out. Yeah, they can go to Willpower with one L WillpowerMarketing.com. You can find out about the different brand activations reaching the African American consumer and my core uh, marketing company. There, you can go to TheSilentAgreement.com to order the book and to find out about the speaking engagements I have coming up about the book and some other things on there too, eventually too. But then reach me directly, DM me on my Instagram page. I, the letter M, willpower with one L. Nice. Very good. All right, my friend. Well, thank you for being a part of the show. Thank you for your input. Congratulations on all the success. Advanced congratulations for your book. We hope, uh, you know, it sells millions of copies. And, you know, I know we're going to be seeing you and your work uh, for many days and years to come. So thank you for being a part of this. Jesus, any last words? No. You can't beat Will. Can I beat Will? No. Will, it was awesome, man. We appreciate you. All right, everybody. So remember to subscribe to the show. Tell your friends. Share. Go to patreon.com backslash the diversity remix to support the work that we do. And we'll see you again next time on TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the diversity remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez, with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza, and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.